Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey, everybody. We're really excited to have Raj Shah with us today on the show. Raj is the co-founder of Shield Capital, an investment firm focused on technologies applicable to both commercial and defense markets. He's also the chairman of Resilience, a cybersecurity startup. Most recently, he was a managing partner of the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, the IUX, reporting to the Secretary of Defense. Raj led the IUX in its efforts to strengthen U.S. armed forces through contractual and cultural bridges between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon. Previously, Raj was Senior Director of Strategy at Palo Alto Networks, which acquired Morta Security, where he was Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder. He began his business career as a consultant at McKinsey. Raj, welcome to the show. Lucas, great to be here with you. Amazing. Well, we're very excited to have you on. So Raj, maybe to just kick us off, could you give us an overview of Shield Capital and the type of investments you're looking to make there? So Shield Capital is something I've been uh, working on and thinking about for, for many years. And it is a early stage venture fund focused on companies at the intersection of national security and commercial customers. And our, our thesis is that companies that can uh, uh, delight customers in both categories. Uh, <clears throat> one will outperform and be just great investment. But secondly, we really important for what I think is the greatest challenge of our generation, which is authoritarianism versus liberal Western democracies. And I've got the great benefit of working with an amazing set of, of colleagues who I've known for a very long time. Incredible. When you're looking to make investment into companies building dual-use technologies, how do you evaluate uh, whether or not the founders already have the experience in navigating government contracting? Uh, yeah. We've talked to a lot of speakers here that you know share a little bit more uh, about the maze that it is working with the government. Well, from the investor hat, how much do you care about whether or not the founder knows how to go through that maze? It's a great question. And so maybe I'll say two things. First off, we take an expansive view of what it means to be at this nexus. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the companies actually have to sell to the government or the intelligence communities, but just that influencing and interacting with them will give them an unfair advantage in the market. But more directly to your, your question, Lucas, is uh, quite candidly, we don't care uh, if our entrepreneurs have deep experience in selling to the to the government. If that's part of the business model, uh, that's where we come in because we, you know, this, these skills of how to navigate take a really long time to to learn, um, and you have to do it by having experience. And we've got guys in our team like uh, a guy named David Rothside who you know spent 13 years as an acquisition officer in the U.S. Air Force ran all their software acquisitions, and so really knows the ins and outs. Um, so we can bring that. <clears throat> and then, you know, the other half of it, I think, to be a good investor is it helps to be an operator uh, in in startup world. And so if you look at our, our founding partners, you know, three of us have gone from paper napkins to, to unicorn our, ourselves. So, uh, you know, more specifically, when we're looking at a company and we're evaluating it, you know, we're really looking at, at three things. Uh, not first and foremost is the team. 
Like, who are they? How have we known them? How passionate are they? As you guys both know, uh, startups are hard, and you need someone that's going to fight through the the difficulties uh, that inevitably come up. So, you know, what? Who's the team, and 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 what do we think about them? Uh, then, of course, is the is the market? Is it big enough? And for us, it's what's the commercial side of it because. Uh, that is a, a critical piece for us because uh, as much as I love the government and have spent years of my life making it easier to sell into government, it's still hard, and and you want to have two pathways. And then you know, and then thirdly, of course, is the technology. What are they building? What's their solution? Uh, why is it? Why are customers excited about it? So that that's what we look at when we're uh, considering partnering with a company. So. Raj, a lot of the companies that end up being dual use tend to often involve hardware or not pure software. Recently, of course, we had this major economic downturn. We may or may not be in a recession. How has that affected these hard tech companies, particularly the dual use ones, as opposed to pure software companies that might not be uh, as applicable uh, for dual use uh, type roles? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you have these market downturns, which has been new for I think a lot of people in this ecosystem, uh, the one good thing about the government is that their budgets don't also follow the markets, right? They're still going to spend. And in fact, anything, uh, they're going to spend more. So it's a great customer customer to have. <clears throat> and you know, traditionally, the places like the Department of Defense, for example, they know how to buy hardware uh, more than they know how to buy software, though they're, they're slowly, uh, uh, I think, maturing along that uh, along that curve. And so I think it's a you know it's a unique opportunity in time during a downturn um one for the government right so the government can say they I really want technology in these areas uh even if they're hardware uh and by being a good customer can influence the market perhaps more than they normally would cuz traditionally they're a smaller smaller buyer for on the entrepreneurial side for company founders if done right, and that's a big asterisk, because otherwise, if you don't do it right, you can waste a lot of time with the government. But if done right, the government can be a great customer and can uh, provide you know, essential revenue for that business uh, while the the private markets may be may be contracting. So I think this is again part of the thesis that that we have of of having uh, having companies that sit at that nexus will let them, will allow them to outperform in all market conditions. So speaking of an understanding um, how to make sure your companies are able to work well with the government, before you started Shield, you led DIU. Um, we've also had Mike Brown on the podcast as well, who was also leading DIU. Tell us a little bit about your top takeaways and what are some of the lessons that you impart on your founders from that experience? So I think there's a couple of things that I would I would focus on uh, the advice we give founders. You know, first and foremost is be very judicious with your time and where you approach, right? The, the uh, outside of running out of cash, right? The most uh, limiting factor for a startup is time. You just have a small team, you have so much to do, where are you gonna spend your time? So be very, very uh, careful as to which agencies and customers that you interface with, right? Because while the DOD is one big organization, it's not really one customer, it's probably a hundred customers within there, maybe more, a thousand. And so selecting who's going to give you the most return for your time, I think is the, the, the number one. And number two is that, you know, especially if you're not from there, or even if you are, get real help. Get help from a, an investor that knows it, get help from, 
you know, other advisory groups, because you've got to line up who's got the money, who's got the contract, who's got the need, who's got the authority, who's got the timeline, and all this stuff has to magically come together at the right time for it to result in a contract for a startup. So uh, I think really understanding that and navigating that is, is, is key. So get help. And then I think the thirdly and the the, the, the most important, uh, the final one I give advice is, you know, work on stuff that's really important. And by that, I mean stuff that is really going to make a measure of difference in operations, in how our men and women uh, do uh, uniform, do their jobs, and and again helps helps our our country and our allies and our partners be the deterrence uh, against authoritarianism. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. Like one, it's just exciting. Your engineers are going to be excited. Like you feel good when you come home. You know, like you you help uh, make the world a better place. So I think that's that's really great. And then more from a business standpoint, those are the things that get the greatest attention. And so if you do a good job, people will see it because, again, it matters. Lives are on the line. Uh, and then that uh, will, I think, create momentum uh, from a business standpoint to, to grow. So those are the those are the kind of top three things I tell entrepreneurs. Amazing. And Raj, when you look back, you know, six to eight years ago, uh, when you were heading uh, the Defense Innovation Unit, how would you evaluate the overall ecosystem, not just the IU, but the overall ecosystem when it comes to startups uh, working in the government? How were things back then? And where are we at now? Man, it's so different. It's like night and day. And so there's lots of complaining about acquisition reform. And I've written a bunch of stuff about that. But it is so much better than it was six to eight years ago. So for example, when DIU X at the time was stood up, uh, I think Ash Carter was the first sitting Secretary of Defense to come to the Valley uh, ever, right? I think before that, they had Secretaries of War. They didn't even have Secretary of Defense, right? So he was the first one. And he comes here and he gives a big speech at Stanford and says, you know, the DOD is open for business. We want to partner with you because he had recognized the importance of that, in fact, had written a seminal paper in 2001 about it. So it was totally foreign for the uh, department to come out here, you know, since World War II, historically, when the Valley was first started, actually it was for DOD problems, but uh, it'd been a while. Startups traditionally had been advised by their investors to not work with the government. In fact, when I was running my very first startup, a cybersecurity one, our investors were like, stop wasting your time, it's going to hurt your uh, valuation. And so it was a really difficult and tenuous situation where we had to bring these two worlds together to solve an important mission. Uh, and I'm just pleased to say the team that we had uh, at DIUX, uh, the support that we got from Secretary Carter and then Secretary Mattis was like unbelievable. And, and so now we're in a place where people are doing podcasts on this topic, right? There are countless venture firms, there are countless startups. There are groups trying to help optimize selling the government. So it's a different place. We still have a long way to go. There's still a ton to be done. But I think people recognize the problem, right? I, I, no longer do we have to convince anyone that, hey, this, uh, this stuff, these Silicon Valley-esque type teams are building is going to be important for national defense. Like, no one, no one questions that. AI, commercial space, like it's here to stay. Uh, and the Ukraine conflict has just made that visible to everybody. So... So it's a lot better. Now we now we have to make it better on the margins and, and really now get to scale. Uh, the government needs to get to scale. And that's the challenge. 
And can you dive deeper, Raj, in, into a few of these challenges? Like, what are the biggest challenges? And are they mostly due to bureaucracy, culture, mindset, staffing, process? Like, what, what, what are they? All of the above, right? That's what makes it hard. If it was just an easy technology problem or even just an easy, uh, you know, leadership problem, uh, I think that could be more readily solved. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I know you had Steve Blank earlier uh, on your show and, I will steal one of his phrases, which, you know, we have an amazing system built for a world that no longer exists. And that is true. Our budgeting system, how we do requirements, how we build the software or, or hardware and get it out to our warfighters. It's built for an industrial age where you're going to buy an aircraft carrier and keep it for 50 years. It's not built for a time cycle where two years from now, you can't predict what the software is going to look like if you fully define it, you know, you're wrong from, from the beginning. So let me, let me get more specific. So what's the problem? To me, the problem is how do we move at the speed and scale that's relevant to operationalize this commercial technology for national defense? My uh, uh, view and assertion is, you know, again, outside of long lead hardware, that What's really going to differentiate one adversary from another, one combatant from another, is not necessarily just the technology, but how fast you can adopt and operationalize some new technology. Because technology is constantly uh, changing much faster than it, than it ever was. And so to do that, you know, you've got to one move at speed. And the second one is, okay, once you've gotten something, how do you scale it? Right? We've got a million uh, members in uniform, the 3 million people in the Department of Defense, like it's a big war, right? How do you scale? And so I think the challenge uh, for those two uh, is that our structures and our processes are not built for that. So things like DIU, you know, wonderful track record. Mike Brown's done just an amazing job with it. But it, you know, it's sort of an out-of-band process. It's not the core process. And I, you can't lay blame on the executive branch or the Department of Defense alone. The legislative branch has an equal, if not greater, role to play. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the, the two branches will get together and, and figure out uh, how to adapt and reform the processes. There's a, a, a commission that the legislature has put together called the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budget, and Execution Reform. I'm, I am I'm honored to have a seat on that commission and we're trying to reform the processes that were you know, established in the 50s to modernize it. But it's really a matter of, of scale and speed Le and, and less than of, of new invention. I think we know how to solve it. We just have to have the will to do it. To, to go one layer deep, Raj, how much of it uh, in terms of scale and speed, uh, what, what are the specific things you think that the DOD should do, Congress, and then you know, the, the executive office, the president? Yeah, good question. So well, I think we have to fundamentally, so let's, let's use an example, a specific example. We, I think we have to fundamentally look at software procurement differently than we look at hardware, long lead hardware procurement. The way the process traditionally works is you have some you know, warfighters, soldiers, sailors, airmen that have a need. They talk to a requirements person who puts a list of things, who then sends it off to a program office that's going to go execute it and budget for it. Then you have an acquisition team that actually writes the contract and oversees it. And then you have the folks actually writing the software, building the hardware at the performer. 
And those two chains, like no one talks like the normally the the people building the software and the people using it uh, don't don't talk. So uh, I think we just need a, a different system for uh, we think about software, low cost hardware. Um, I think the the way we do budgeting um, and the ability to be more iterative, start with a performer, start with multiple performers, down select, have milestones, be able to switch those contracts so that's reformed a color of money, which is a abstract government concept we can get into, talk about uh, the ability to cancel a contract and reappropriate those funds to someone else, uh, being able to take your funds from one year, moving to another year. So there's some like basic structural budgeting things that, you know, seem pretty normal, commonplace in the private sector that for a host of reasons you can't do in the, in the private sector. So it's, it starts with the, the the planning process, the budgeting process, and of course the executive branch when they execute. So let's take a look at where we are today and how government or how companies work with the government. When you have companies in your portfolio, without changing how the government is operating, what is your advice on the right process they should be using to work with the government? Are there certain uh, contract vehicles or certain methods that you tell them to go down or to avoid? Um, what's the advice that you give? Yeah, so we give a, a couple pieces of advice. You know, the first is to work with uh, organizations that have the mandate and reputation of moving quickly. So that includes DIU, includes InQtel, includes AFWorks, and a couple of other specific program offices. So, uh, uh, you know, focus your energies there is advice one. I think the second is to really have an eye on how and where this technology or solution is going to transition to something they call a program of record, right? So it's not a uh, R&D, research and development, I wouldn't call it a science project, but sort of just prototype where you'll do one of those and it's unclear where it goes, but having a, a clear pathway. So that's understanding who is the, uh, they call it a program or a PE, a program executive officer, like who actually is mandated by law to have this uh, uh, capability that you're trying to solve and has the budget for it, and how do you make sure that your uh, your capability has a shot? So um, near-term and long-term thinking sort of at the same time. So what are the most common missteps that you're seeing smaller companies make when they try to compete for these government contracts? Well, I mean, the most basic mistake I've seen is uh, a... Startup will meet with a senior ranking uniform officer, a three or a four star, who genuinely loves what they're building and knows that would make their forces uh, better and, and stronger and says, hey, Mr. Startup or Mrs. Startup, I love what you're building. This is so amazing. I can't wait to have it. Hey, come, I have my executive officer with me. They're going to follow up and figure this out. And so the startup gets really excited spend some energy, spend a lot of time, has lots of conversations, but doesn't realize that the chances of that going to anywhere is absolutely zero. And those 20 meetings are have been an utter waste of time. And not because anyone has bad intentions. It's just, that's not how the process works and their timeline and incentives are not aligned. So that's, that's one of the most rookie ones I've seen. I mean, I think other things that you see is uh, you win one of these uh, small business innovation research grants called Sibbers which, uh, you know, is interesting. You get a million or two from the government, uh, which, you know, in, in, if you're an early stage startup and you got that from a, a big uh, a big Fortune 1000 company, right, uh, you'd get really excited. And so they, they do. They begin to move their 
product development roadmap towards that, toward those specific problem sets. Again, not realizing that it's actually not going anywhere past that. And that's probably the last contract you're getting. And again, waste a lot of product dev cycles. And so that's another common one I see. What's your take on uh, consultants being used? You know, it seems like most startups now are trying to figure out, oh, we need to hire a consultant to, you know, do AppWorks or Spaceworks or even, uh, you know, STPRs, all these different programs. How do you, how do you think about that? You know, in all things, there's good ones and there's bad ones. Um, I, I always find that uh, uh, whenever you uh, look at uh, uh, anything in life, or particularly in, in business, if you can align incentives, it's the best. And so if the uh, consultant has the same incentive, meaning they're, it's shared success, they don't get compensated until you win, that makes it easier versus someone uh, charging you a large fee. I mean, I think that's the difference that we try to take the approach. We're very committed to our companies because we're investors in them and all of the advice and support and man, that just is part and parcel with uh, uh, with us being a partner of the company. And Raj, to think a little bit more about the role of venture capital in funding these companies, uh, you know, there was a, a pretty good discussion on Twitter the other day uh, with Ian Roundtree talking about, you know, is venture capital the right method to funding, you know, these next defense companies, all, all the all the new companies, the new wave of companies that we need to revitalize national security. Um, I'm curious if you have a, a take uh, on, you know, w- what the role of VC is and what are the different sources of financing that we could be pursuing that is, if, if not venture capital? Venture capital, I think, plays uh, and ha- has a very important role to play, but it's not the only source of financing out there and not always the most appropriate source of financing, particularly in defense. So there are a lot of great defense companies that start uh, more service-oriented because they defense part needs services, and those businesses are probably not appropriate for, for venture. And, and you can build a great, wonderful business that's making real impact. Uh, using other sources, uh, there are you know, if you're sometimes doing really large uh, hardware spinouts. There's uh, later stage capital. There's corporate capital that can be that can be very uh, helpful. But I think, and of course, there's always the the path of bootstrapping, which is a time and true way of building a company. But I think if you're building a business that you intend to scale very rapidly, that you that has a high technical hurdle where you have to recruit some of the best engineers in the world, be they software or hardware, and, and invest in building that mode before you can go to market, that's where venture capital plays a role. Uh, and it has historically for uh, enterprise-focused companies you know, uh, across the customer base. And, and folks that, you know, and, and supporting entrepreneurs have a really big vision of, of changing an industry that they're passionate about uh, and you want to partner. So uh, I do think as, as software becomes more central to our capabilities uh, in national uh, defense, right? Uh, as you know, I was a F-16 pilot, it's a great airplane, but really it's turned into you know a vehicle to move radars and electronics around and the software behind it is uh, just important, if not more important than the hardware. That's, that's the role that uh, software-oriented companies that are venture-backable can play. Should venture capitalists that are looking to invest in this sector rethink the 10-year model 
uh, of venture funds? Or do you think that the 10 year model works just as fine uh, to, to invest in these sectors? You know, these things are long lead times called deep tech, hard tech, you know, it's whatever the, the name du jour. Um, these things do have long gestation, but that's not new. That's not a new concept, right? If you build, if you're building, if you're investing in semiconductors back in the eighties, same, same thing. So it's a different use case. So uh, I, I think there's lots of options, and I think the world, the finance world, is different today as well. That you can stay private for a long time. There are ample sources of later stage capital. You know, this you know, last uh, six months, the next eighteen months, notwithstanding. Uh, and there's lots of ways to to find capital. So I uh, I don't I don't think it's a impediment. And if there's something that has a longer gestation, there's ways to ways to solve that structurally. So to take a step back for a little bit and look at um, the other types of companies that are building technology for the government, and specifically talking about a lot of these prime contractors, they tend to get a bad rap from startups who are trying to compete with them. I'd love to learn a little bit more how you think they fit into this ecosystem, what needs to change, and how startups should actually embrace or if they should embrace the primes uh, for certain purposes. Yeah, so my thinking on that is certainly certainly involved. And I, I've come to the conclusion now that the you know, we talked about speed and scale again as as what I think the two major rubrics are. I think for young startups, sometimes it's difficult to do that uh, totally alone. And so if you found the right uh, prime partner, you can get the advantages that working with a large prime can give you, which is so security clearances, the services, relationships, and you can focus and the startup can then focus on what it's really good at, which is, you know, cutting edge, unique technology. Now, obviously, I'm biased on that. Full disclosure, I, I, I so fundamentally believe in that model that, you know, one of our partners at Shield Capital is L3 Harris. And I think, they are uh, leaning forward in in trying to do this uh, and try to trying to partner with with startups. Um, but so so I think it can be done. I think we actually did that at DIU when I was there. That we would sometimes take a large prime and a young startup and say, you know, you guys need to work together and and, and bid on this together. So I think that works really well. You know, I think. The challenge and why some primes get a bad rap is that they have leverage because of the contracts and because of the relationships. And so sometimes I think those primes are suffering from short-term thinking. Hey, I just need to maximize my margin on this one contract. And I don't care if that impales the young startup that's working with me, you know, there'll be another one. And they don't, I think, think long-term that, hey, these guys are going to grow, they're going to have the best tech, and you want to uh, have a, you know, a collaborative relationship with them. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm optimistic that they'll get there. Not all of them will. Um, you've seen that change in uh, the private side, though, right? Uh, when young companies now work with some of the largest corporations, and of course, everyone negotiates for the best deal, but they know that, hey, these startups are going to uh, grow and succeed and they want to have a good relationship. That's why they all have venture arms now. It's why they have partnerships. I don't think that all the primes have gotten there yet, but I think I'm starting to see if some of them move in that direction. So Raj, other than the scale of those primes and, and you know the difficulty that startups have in general of competing with them uh, and you know acknowledging the the slowness of the process of working with the government, what are the general you know, mistakes 
uh, or uh, you know errors that that founders have commit uh, when thinking about primes and and working with the government. I think for startups, there's you know a couple of things that they need to think through. So one certainly IP rights. The primes traditionally, again, using a a model that was built in the hardware era. Era, if we're going to work with someone, says, you know, I want to have some IP here. I want to have some exclusivity or or protection. So a startup has to navigate that, particularly again if their software and their IP is constantly constantly changing. Finding creative ways to understand who's going to be the prime versus the the sub. And you know, I think the other mistake I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but maybe opportunity that goes missed is. When, you, when we're thinking about net new programs or net new software programs, I think there's a great opportunity for, for startups to go direct to the government and win. And that's what a lot of our companies are, are doing. But there's also an opportunity to say, look, there's this massive hardware installed base in the, in the, in the government, right? Or in the military, right? We're not, we got a whole bunch of old tanks and radios and systems. They're like not going away. They're central to what we do. We need to, 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 improve the their capability there needs to be uh, rapid software updates and adding of new uh, functionality you have to work with the, the the original manufacturer of that oftentimes to to get that to work so I think being creative about those relationships and and partnerships is the other thing that uh, startups could do so we've definitely noticed a trend where more of these primes are now creating venture capital arms to invest in some of these startups. Yeah. Um, what are the pros and cons of that? Yeah, sure. So on a startup side, right, the pro is uh, a source of capital and a, and a deeper partnership. Uh, the cons are it's not always clear how well tied the venture arm is with the operating arm, and they may be at odds. The other downfall, the other negative is uh, certainly their signaling impact from taking strategic money early in a company's life. And then the third one is, you know, some of these venture arms uh, at large companies, and you see that in the defense and non-defense world, are very uh, tied to the current leadership, meaning you have a CEO that loves it, so it happens, and then you have a new CEO, and then the venture arm gets shut down, and that's not good for a startup. So... Uh, I think you have to you have to think very carefully um, about that. Um, you know, again, not it's not a commercial, but like we, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. So we tried to design a system that you you would get the benefit, but avoid all of those negative factors I described. And then yeah. there, there's definitely a little bit of a reputation in the space, or it seems like there's murmurs among companies that if they take the money, maybe it leads them towards an acquisition, or you know, it blocks them from working with other primes. Do you think that's a worry, or is that something that companies shouldn't be so worried about? Oh, especially early, that's always a worry. Again, that's not a defense-specific uh, question or concern. It's true in all, I think, early-stage startups that if a likely acquirer you know, is on your cap table early in your company, it may limit, it may limit your exit options, you know, what uh, rights come associated with that. So I think you have to, especially in the early days, you do have to be very judicious as a, as a startup founder. And Raj, I, I don't know if this has been your experience as well, but I think uh, over the last six months to a year, we've seen more and more venture investors coming from all different sorts of backgrounds trying to invest in national security and defense, maybe sparked by the Ukraine war, maybe sparked uh, by, by a lot of other uh, issues, right? 
What do you think could be the failure mode of investors that don't come from this space uh, trying to invest in these industries? Yeah, it's a good question. First off, I'm glad that more people are interested in it. Right? You don't want to be the only investor in a sector. You need friends to lead the other rounds and continue to support the company. So in general, I'm very uh, glad to see this, this trend. Um, I think that the failure mode is that defense is hard. You know, you alluded to some of it from the contracting standpoint, the time horizon standpoint. And it's not a, you know, it's a very esoteric acronym filled world. And it takes some time to, I think, really learn the ins and outs of it. And so I think one feeling mode that I would fear is that uh, you have some companies that struggle and you're not able to help or it takes longer than you want. And you see some of these um, sources of capital decide to leave leave the market. So I think that's a that's a failure mode. Um, you know, I think the, the other one is really, you know, how well do they understand uh, the customer? And are they able to filter what's a, a real demand signal from from that? And what do you think can those investors bring to the table that could help founders uh, trying to build in those sectors? So, you know, investors that invest in SaaS, that invest in all different sectors, yeah. uh, what, what could, you know, defense in, you know, aerospace founders most benefit from them? Look, I think um, there's a lot of those are very smart investors. And especially if you're also trying to sell commercially, the expertise and relationships from enterprise customers could be valuable. Sources, just you know, good sources of capital. And in again, you want really good people around your board advising and mentoring and helping your company. So sometimes a lot of this is based not just on even the firm, but who, who are you working with, right? Because you're gonna uh, you're gonna be stuck with that board member for a very long time. So you wanted to have a, a, a very positive and constructive relationship. So Raj, as we think about the capitalization structure of a lot of these companies, right? They're usually gonna require larger sums of capital given the nature of, as we talked about earlier, potentially taking longer to reach a fruition point, but also, as we mentioned earlier too, uh, there's more hardware at play. Uh, for all of our listeners who are founders who are building companies and about to embark on this journey and need to raise more capital to actually pull this all off, is there anything in particular they should be looking for in their investors to make sure that they're able to kind of support that future capitalization? And I think that's mostly true for hardware, as you described, Ian. I don't know if it's true for, for software. Um, while some of the cycles are longer, uh, if you're building really great software, there's oftentimes great commercial opportunities first. Like many of our cyber deals, we suggest they go commercially first and then DOD. So it's not always that way. And once you start with DOD or government, they're slow. But the good thing is they always pay on time and they usually keep paying. So uh, it, it can be positive. But but to your point on, I think, hardware, uh, I think it's really important that uh, folks select investors that uh, either have a reputation of uh, you know deep pockets and following on, or just you know have a lot of uh, great reputation in the industry, so people follow them, and right, and they view them as a as a signal, because uh, raising you know for special hardware, you know raising B and C rounds can become difficult, and you want you want to have the right uh, supporters, uh, you know, rowing the boat with you. I think it is really important to. If you when you're looking at investors to ask, you know, in this in this space, two questions, right? One, does that investor really understand this customer set and can be helpful that? Uh, but two, equally as important is um, can they be helpful in the boardroom 
just in company building, right? Because what I think the challenge um, in this in this market, which again, uh, I think scares a lot of people why you've had sometimes mixed results is that you're doing two really hard things at the same time. You're building a company from scratch, like that alone is super hard. And then you're trying to go and solve problems for probably the hardest customer in the world. And you're doing them, you know, both in flight. And, and so I, if I was a founder, I'd ask myself, who's going to give me the most help to, to succeed and overcome these challenges? And Raj, when you think about spaces to invest in that, you know, related to national security, are there any white spaces that you have not seen a lot of activity in that you're really excited about? And perhaps what about the opposite? Are, are there any spaces that you think are super saturated that, you know, to go back to the previous question, that investors that are not as familiar are going to make a mistake of investing in it? That's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, again, I, going back to the portion we talked about how much the world has changed, I am just been pleasantly surprised to see how many companies are in this broad area of this nexus, national security and commercial. Unbelievably more than there were five years ago with really, really great founders. So, you know, I think all the all the areas are 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 competitive, which uh, you know, which is good. There are certainly, you know, specific white spaces uh, inside inside all of them. I don't, you know, have any you know, specific uh, generalizations or you know, uh, to, to make uh, there. But again, I think it's, it were still the early days of this bow wave. And I guess what I would say is if you look at, let's just take one organization, the Department of Defense, right? Their annual budget is 770, maybe I think it's like $810 billion now. If they move just 1%, half a percent of their budget, towards you know these non-traditional as they would call them commercially oriented technologies you know that's multi-billions of dollars of spent uh, and so i think we're still in the early days of seeing this market grow uh, and the same technologies that are so important for national security let's think ai let's think cyber uh, are still i think in their early days on the commercial side which is even a larger market so there's plenty of room for lots of winners that's what I tell a founder. So in light of all of the challenges that our society and our nation face, all the technologies that you're helping fund that should solve these problems, when you take a step back, what keeps you optimistic looking at uh, all of these issues that we're facing? Yeah, so yeah, that's great. I think to me, you know, there's a couple of things or probably two. So one is just meeting founders. Like I just love meeting these founders that are passionate about the space, about what they're building and their depth of knowledge. Right, it's not, it's not misguided passion. So there's really, really strong people uh, coming into it. And then I think second is I'm seeing both at the really senior levels, so I think three, four stars, as well as folks boots on the ground, the young um, uh, enlisted officers that are that are keeping our nation safe, clamoring and asking for this type of capability. And so you're seeing a, a massive pool. And, and you know, when you see it work, when you see a great founder build a technology, and then you see it make someone in the field's uh, life better and, and better at their job, like there's nothing, nothing more rewarding. Incredible. 
And Raj, what would be your message to, to the audience and, you know, the founders that want to build in the space, but for whatever reason, you know, do not think that they have the right background or, you know, the, 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 the perfect match uh, to, to build uh, into, into one of those industries? Uh, I'd give them two pieces of advice. One, just do it. And two, call me. Let's talk about it. Uh, we're happy to help. I love it. Uh, and what would be the best way for founders to, to get in touch with you and Shield Capital? Uh, just send me an email. It's rshaw at shieldcap.com. Incredible. Raj, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks, uh, Lucas. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate the opportunity. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.